behalf. It still speaks a better word. It still cleanses me of all iniquity. By his stripes, I've been healed. Come, let us reason together. Though your sins were as scarlet, they have been made as white as snow. We're reminded of what the blood of Jesus has done on our behalf, but the word of our testimony, that's what we say about who Christ is in our life. (laughs) You can be encouraged by somebody else's testimony, but when you get a testimony of your own, all of a sudden it'll add momentum to your spiritual life like you have never had before. I think one of the tragedies sometimes of people who've grown up in church, they think to themselves, well, you know, I haven't been out in the world and being crazy and I don't have a story like the person next to me, so I don't really know if I have a testimony. Listen, whether or not you were ever on drugs for 40 years and being crazy, whether or not you have the wildest Hallmark movie testimony that ever exists, the reality is, is that there was a time when you were dead without hope on your way to a sinner's hell. And in the fullness of time, God interrupted the narrative of your life. You were forgiven of your sin. You were promised a place in eternity and Jesus became king of your heart. That's a testimony worth sharing. That's a testimony worth repeating. And if you lose sight of how good God has been in your life, the enemy will sow doubt into your spirit. And the enemy's plans have always been the same from the very beginning of time. Did God really say? Has God really done? Are you sure that God is really correct? And you've got to have that testimony so wrapped up inside of your heart that when the world come in like a flood, when the enemy come against you, you've got the testimony of the believer. That's why scripture says, let the redeemed of the Lord tell their story. There is power in the public confession of your testimony. Sometimes I have to testify to myself even before I get out of bed. You born again, Russell, remember that. (laughs) You going to heaven, remember that. It's gonna be okay, God's gonna provide. I gotta tell myself the story of how good God has been. Now watch what happens here in Matthew 14. Matthew, a follower of Jesus, records this story. He says, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, while at the same time he dismissed the crowds. Say it again. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. And yet at the same time, he dismissed the crowds. Let me give you a warning tonight, friend. There is a danger that you must be aware of as this church continues to grow. For if you are not intentional, you run the risk of being in the crowd without actually being connected to the king. Hear me, it's easier to hide in a big church than it is in a small one. See, in a big church, you can blend in. In a big church, you can hide out. In a big church, it's easy to appear as if you are connected when really you are just part of the crowd. And I want you to notice that the focus of Jesus's ministry, although he drew great crowds, He'd walk into cities and people would stream out of their houses and they'd come from the highways and the byways and there'd be thousands of them in the field and he'd be teaching them. And everywhere he went, he was harassed by people who want to crown him king and declare him as the Messiah. I mean, everywhere that Jesus went, drawing a crowd was never a problem. But hear me, everywhere that Jesus went, drawing a crowd was also never the point. The focus of the ministry of Christ is mostly related to these 12 individuals. 11 who don't understand him, one who wants to kill him. And Jesus invests three and a half years of who he is, replicating everything that he is. He says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. He is demonstrating to these disciples what it looks like to live otherworldly lives. You are born from above, seated in heavenly places. And, uh, and, and Christ represents to them the ethic, the power, and the invitation of what it means to be a part of the kingdom of heaven. And I'm just so struck by this in verse 22 because it seems to be counterintuitive to like the church growth model or movement of our day. Jesus is looking at the crowds. He don't take no offering. Jesus is looking at the crowds. He don't collect no contact information. Jesus is looking at the crowds. He don't develop no small group strategy. Jesus is looking at the crowds. He doesn't say, all right, we're gonna be here tomorrow at this same time in this field with these sheep. Make sure you're back here. He looks at his disciples. He's like, hey, go get in the boat, man. I need you guys to get to the other side. And he dismisses the crowds. I think sometimes in our generation, we think of church like an automatic car wash. I'm gonna shift into neutral, take my hands off the wheel, 
And by the time that I'm done, I better be all cleaned up for the week ahead. (laughs) No friend, church is an invitation to invest your time, talent, and treasure in the house of God so that you will be transformed by the presence of God. And in doing so, develop disciplines, patterns, and habits that drive your lifelong pursuit of the things of God. If we were being honest tonight, some of us want the pastor to cook the food, chew the food, spit the food in our mouths like a bird, digest the food on our behalf, and then start the whole thing all over again the following Sunday. Nah, this is an environment where you can grow and be challenged, where you can be offended and get over it, where you can forgive and love and be stretched and develop friendships. See, if it's my job, see, it's my job to lead you to the well, but it's your responsibility to drink. I was talking to these uh, pastors in California last week and these young guns and they're doing a good job. And he was asking me, hey, can you help explain the growth of pursuit over the last few years? And I was like, I wish I could. I mean, if I had a strategy to tell you, I'd write a book, but I just don't. But he said, what do you kind of do with these guys who show up and they're talented and they want to be a part of the crew and, you know, these types of things. And I communicated back to him. I said, you know, if everybody who had ever told me, Russ, we're with you for the rest of your life was still here today, this church would be 35,000. <laughs> I said, people come and go, seasons come and go, opportunities come and go. The only thing that will ever remain consistent in your life is the one who walks beside you because he lives inside of you. <laughs> I think sometimes in our world today, we are enamored by things that do not impress God. We, 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 we are excited and motivated by things where God is not saying necessarily that they're bad or they're wrong or they're evil, but what God is after is the deep, holy, profound, transformative process that your heart goes under by submitting to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And that don't happen when you're just hanging out in the crowd. You know, in sociology, they call it mob mentality. You ever been in a mob type environment and all of a sudden you find yourself doing stuff that you wouldn't normally do, but it's just because everybody else is doing it? (laughs) I don't know if you ever grew up in a household where you had parents who said, well, Russ, if all of your friends jumped off a cliff, would you do it too? I'm like, probably, you know, because I get in a crowd and I'm like, let's go. And I don't even know what we're going for, but let's go, you know. I kind of had this experience last month when we was doing our big United for Israel rally at the UW and we was doing the march from Red Square back to the church and we got to that real busy intersection on 45th and all of a sudden people kind of started to congregate and the cops were trying to shoo us on and get out of the intersection and I was like you know they always doing protests in Seattle blocking the traffic for all sorts of stupid stuff I'm gonna sit in this intersection until I'm all done. And pretty soon we had six, 700 people just chilling in the intersection. People's getting out and they're filming and what is this? And we got all of our signs out and our chants out and it wasn't planned and it wasn't produced. It was kind of just like the urgency of the moment produced this kind of collective buy-in where all of a sudden we're like, we don't know what we're doing, but we're in the middle of the street and we ain't leaving. We've got to fight the urge as believers to develop a crowd mindset. No, you are not a number, you are a name. You have a story, you have something of value to give, you have something valuable to receive, and you are not just a consumer. For the apostle Peter says, you are a living stone in the house of the almighty God. Jesus dismisses the crowds. But do you know why the crowds are there in the first place? Because if you would read a couple verses prior to the one in which we started, you would see that the free food is flowing. Jesus just fed 5,000 a free lunch with 12 baskets of food left over. But as quickly as the crowds gather, they also disperse. 
Here would be a great question for you to ask yourself as we go into 2024. Who is in your life because of the free food versus who is in your life because of you? Watch who still stands with you when the free food runs out. Because by the way, those are the people you need in your boat. (laughs) Oh, it's easy to rally when everything is dope and awesome. We're going forward and it's the hottest thing in town. But you need a couple people in your life who saw you when you had nothing, believed in you when you was nothing loved you when you was unlovable, prayed for you when nobody else was praying for you because those are the people at the end of the day who got your back come hell or high water. And my fear is that in our generation, what we have developed is a bunch of transactional relationships. What can you do for me? And therefore, what can I do for you? And as long as you benefit me and I benefit you and we can both kind of gravitate off of each other so we can reach that next sphere of influence or social media presence or connectivity or networking as soon as that kind of loses its edge I'm looking for the next parasite to attach myself to so that I can keep climbing the ladder of success in the western world and I'm letting you know that some of the most valuable relationships in your life will be from people who don't need anything from you they just like you for who you are because you got a soul connection with them and they are your ride or die for the rest of your life You need some people who are not just there for the free Chick-fil-A when it's flowing. It's like the parable of the prodigal son who had a lot of friends and a lot of parties and a lot of influence when the money was flowing. And as soon as it dried up, the only people who saw fit to still hang out with him was the pigs in the pen. (laughs) Some people are only part of the crowd until they disagree. They are only part of the crowd until the food stops being free. What tests your resilience is not the good times, it's the bad. Anyone can have a great marriage while you're on your honeymoon. But what about when the bills is tight? What about when the kids is acting up? What about when the romance has seemed to fade? I was doing a funeral a few years ago for a man who had passed away in our church and After the service, there was a time of fellowship in the foyer afterwards, including food. And I was making my rounds, being a good pastor, greeting people and saying hi. And I saw a man looking sad, sitting all by himself, enjoying his plate of food. So I decided to strike up a conversation. Hey, my name's Russ. Thanks for being here today and honoring so-and-so. And how did you know this dear saint in the Lord that has passed away? He looked at me all surprised. He said, oh, I didn't. I was just walking by and I saw that you guys had free food. (laughs) Here's the problem. We got an entire generation of people who are fans of Jesus, but they are not followers. They love the free food, but they can't stand the idea of counting the cost. It sounds like this. Oh, I'm not here for a long time. I'm here for a good time. I'm most interested in what I can get, not what I can give. See, in the church, our need for entertainment is high. And our desire for deep formation is low. Therefore, as soon as the free food runs out, so do we. A number of years ago, we were able to buy our building in Snohomish that we're in now, the former JCPenney building. It's about 21,000 square feet. And one of the things that we was able to do when the church was smaller, when we only had one service, is every Sunday morning in the lobby, we'd have the cartons of coffee and the donuts and the cookies, encouraging people to hang out and have fun and talk to one another and meet a friend. And 
all of a sudden the church began to grow. We went from a 9 a.m. service to a 9 a.m. and an 11 a.m. service. We could still do it and we could still provide those types of things. And we were trying to be a community church and let people know that we loved it. And, and then all of a sudden the, the church began to grow a little bit more. So it was nine and then it was 10.30 and then it was noon. And pretty soon I began to recognize that my free donut coffee budget in the foyer was growing exponentially. And pretty soon it was no longer feasible for us to do because of the amount of traffic coming into the church and going out of the church, the foyer became a choke point. It was like rush hour traffic on I-5. Nobody could get in and nobody could get out because everybody was lined up just looking for the food. On top of it being enormously expensive, it was not an efficient use of the real estate space that we had. And so one Sunday I just made the decision that we were no longer gonna offer those things. Of course, we'll still do men's breakfast once a month and We'll do the women's events and we'll feed people at pursuit nights and, and we're still going to help people out and feed people and love on people and create the best family atmosphere that we can. But I said, look, we can no longer do the coffee and donuts on Sunday morning. I thought we were going to have a church split. <laughs> Up to that point, it was like the most controversial thing that we had ever done. <laughs> How dare he? He's taking away our very meaning for existence and purpose. And I just think that you find out pretty quick who's there for a good time versus who dare for a long time. I want you to notice what is happening here in Matthew 14. See, Jesus is forming his disciples. Whether they know it or not, every action that Jesus undertakes is a modicum of teaching for his disciples to pick up on. Jesus is forming his disciples by giving them a separate and distinct identity apart from the crowds. Jesus even did this amongst the 12. He had 12 disciples, but then he had three, Peter, James, and John. And then he had a disciple who John says, I'm the disciple whom he loved. And that was the apostle John. And so even amongst the 12, Jesus had three. Even amongst the three, Jesus had one. And Jesus had different levels of interactions with every subsection of groupings of people that he ministered to. And just let me offer this for free for you tonight. I think one of, one of the one of the, the great misnomers that we believe as God begins to cause us to grow and accelerate and walk in our destiny and go after the plans and purposes that he has for us is we think that we can always take everybody with us and you can't. Because not everybody in your last season of life understands the acclamation the elevation or the pressure of where you're going. It doesn't mean that you gotta dump them and be rude to them and act like you're too good for them. But I think one of the lessons that we've gotta learn is that when God takes you on a journey, he is faithful to provide every relational resource you need from that moment forward. But oftentimes it looks like God taking you through a refining process by which what you had in the last season is not what you'll have in the next season. It's interesting to me that Jesus could do more with 12 than he could with 5,000. Why? Because it's not the size of the crowd, but instead the depth of their commitment that ultimately determines to which degree God can use a person for his glory. <laughs> do you know why I ask you to tithe and why I ask you to serve and why I ask you to pray and why, why I ask you to attend, why, why I ask you to invite a friend or a family member, I am doing my best to help crucify the crowd mentality and to resurrect a discipleship identity. We are here to be deeply formed by Christ's presence, but deep formation is impossible without equally deep roots. See, my roots must go deeper than the shallow soil of offense. My roots must go deeper than the shallow soil of preference. Are we having Krispy Kreme? Are we having Top Pot? My roots must go deeper than hurt, pain, frustration, or misunderstanding. I got deep roots because I am interested in deep development, and that doesn't happen if I give up when the free food disappears. See, when I give, when I serve, when I attend, when I pray, 
when I invite, I am transitioning from a watcher of the ministry to a worker of the ministry. I am going from an observer to a participator. I'm changing from a receiving mindset to a giving mindset. Now we're a couple weeks out from Christmas and Christmas changes the older you get. At Christmas time, my joy does not come from getting yet another pair of socks under the Christmas tree. My joy comes from seeing my kids open their presents. In fact, the older I've gotten, I let my kids even open my presents <laughs> because I know it's another pair of socks from Maria. <laughs> and it's not that I'm thankful for good socks, it's just is what it is. It's not that I don't like to receive gifts myself. It's that a hallmark of spiritual maturity is when you find yourself being overjoyed at someone else's blessing without asking the question, why not me? Maybe if you celebrated when someone else got blessed, God could trust you with a blessing of your own. Do you know why the crowd don't have buy-in? Because it don't cost you anything to be part of the crowd. Being in the crowd costs you nothing. Hear me. Being a perpetual critic costs you nothing. But being a disciple, that'll cost you everything. And in the final estimation of things, hear me, it'll be the best investment you have ever made. See, disciples of Jesus, they a different breed. Nah, they won't easily give up on their faith, their commitments, their community, their church. Why? Because it cost them something to be here in the first place. So they aren't going to abandon their investments. I don't know how many of you in this room have had the privilege yet of ever raising your own money and saving your own income and buying your own very first car. So crazy to me to see college kids today rolling up to church and cars that cost more than my first 10 cars combined. <laughs> like who bought you this? Oh, dad, okay, cool. Mom, cool, I'm not upset. It's just, it's different than the way that we grow up. But I'll tell you what, I'll never forget buying my first car. It was a historic 1989 gold Dodge Aries. They don't even make it in that color anymore, I'll tell you that. I parked next to people, I say, don't even look at it. Don't even look at it. Bring it back, gassed and washed. <laughs> if you've never heard of this car before, there's a reason. It was ugly. It had problem after problem. It went zero to 60 sometimes. And that was about it. I never forget today, this is a true story. God is my witness. I'm driving down the freeway in my 1989 gold Dodge Aries. And all of a sudden, smoke began to billow out of the steering wheel. I don't know why, I'm not a mechanic, I'm not sure. I didn't know that that part could even smoke on a car, but it did. It was one of those cars that, you know, whenever it would make a noise that you knew it wasn't good, I would just turn up the radio a little louder, you know, and drown it out. I, said, I cancel you, demon, I just, I'm gonna keep driving this thing. Now this car was ugly as sin. But when I paid $1,200 for that, because it, watch, cost me something, it instantly became valuable. Watch, and do you know what's funny? Because it cost me something, I protected it with my life. <laughs> I mean, this thing was ugly. Like, you don't understand 
the testimony of an overcomer who has come out of a Dodge Aries season. The headliner in the car was molding and so it would droop real down low and rest on your head as you drove the car. One time, one of the door handles, it just broke off, broke off. So what do you do? You crawl in the other door because you don't have no money to fix it. I never forget the day that I finally registered this in my name and 12 $100 bills and I was more proud than ever before. And the first thing I did was rolled over to one of my friend's house and I picked him up in the whip, you know? I said, hey, man, you know, I ain't trying to flex, but it's a Dodge Aries, you know? Get it right. And, and you know, he, he came out and I said, man, let's hit the fast food joint, you know? It's like, yeah, let's. And we was, we was, we was going into the fast food joint and all of a sudden got our meal and I, I got mine and, and I handed him his and, and all of a sudden we took off and, and he opened that bag and began to eat. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. I said, now listen, bro, we don't eat in this car. I kid you not, I remember this clear as day. And he looked at me like I was insane. He said, Russ, we always eat in everybody's car wherever in that we go to the fast food joint. And I said, yeah, bro, but this one, this cost me something. This one's mine. I said, don't even look it. Don't even open the back. Don't get no French fry, nothing. I said, we eat when we get back to the house. And that was my rule for, you know, the entire lifespan of this car until the Lord sent it to hell. But anyways, <laughs> you know what's funny? Because it cost me something, watch. I protected it with my life. Hear me, hear me. And that's why I value the church because it cost Jesus something. And in return, I owe him my life. It cost him something. It cost him something. My plea is that you would be deeply formed by this book. You would be deeply formed by this Jesus. You would be deeply formed by his presence. You would be deeply committed to his bride, the local church. And in doing so, go from being a fan to instead a deeply formed follower. And I can promise you this, you won't ever regret it. Now watch verse 23. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on a mountain by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land. It was beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, which would have been 3 a.m. to 6 a.m., Jesus came to them walking on the sea. Hear me. The disciples go from being formed by Christ to now being in the storm with Christ. And this is in fact the entire pattern of Christ's earthly ministry. Hear me. The longer I follow Jesus, the more that I am convinced that there are essentially only two seasons of life that every Christian will continually experience until God calls us home. There are seasons of blessing and there are seasons of testing. And then there are seasons of blessing followed by seasons of testing. I am blessed so I can endure the test that is coming. And I am tested so God can refine the blessing that's already here. <clears throat> I am blessed with a marriage. I am tested with kids. <clears throat> I am blessed with a job. I'm tested with bills. I'm blessed with freedom. I'm tested with responsibility. 
And if you only ever develop an appetite to praise God when you're blessed and curse Him when you're test, you'll never increase the capacity of your soul to receive that which you need for the next season of your life. I am being formed, hear me, I am being formed so my faith will not fail when I am facing storms. The reason your development is so costly is because your destiny is so great. The storms are a natural part of every season of life. (coughs) I saw this on King 5 this week. They had record rainfall in the Northwest. Every time you think it cannot rain more here, don't even think it because God had just proved it and it just happens. I saw this on King 5, this was three days ago. They said the accumulated total of rainfall in the Northwest over the last seven day period is over 10 trillion gallons of water. I said, thanks God. Let me give you a list of what being in a storm does not mean. Hear me. Because unless you properly contextualize your pain, you'll worship at the wrong altar. Watch. Being in a storm does not mean God is mad. Being in a storm does not mean you've messed up. Being in a storm does not mean things won't ever get better. Do you know what being in a storm means? It means you're human. And the best news that there has ever been is the God that you serve specializes at making his presence most felt when life is most difficult. Somebody at the altar told me a few weeks ago, they said, pastor, pray for me. (coughs) I said, okay, what's going on? They said, I'm really facing a storm. I said, how exciting. That was not the pastoral advice they were looking for in that moment. I said, how exciting. He said, what do you mean? I said, it means your blessing is being refined. It means your breakthrough is coming. It means God has more in store for your life. It means you're not dead. It means God knows you have the capacity for more. (coughs) This wasn't the last time the disciples would encounter a storm but it was the necessary lessons learned on the lake that would forever mark their spiritual development for the days ahead. Hear me, you gotta learn some lessons on the lake. You gotta learn because what you've been praying for is bigger than you think. It's gonna cost you more than you think and it's gonna require more than you got. (laughs) You're never thankful for a storm when you're in it but you're always thankful for the lessons you've learned after you get through it. Can I tell you, we would not be in a position to be launching a campus in less than a month in Kirkland if it wasn't for the storms of the last 12 months. It's never fun while you're in it, but by the time that you're knocking on the next door in the hallway of your destiny and God does something exceedingly abundantly more than you could ever ask, think, or imagine, You are grateful for the development that happened in that last season, which appeared to be so difficult. Watch what the Bible says. Now watch, it says this. They were a long way from the shore, beaten by the waves, and the wind was against them. They were a long way from shore. They was beaten by the waves, and the wind was against them. Watch, this is what storms do. They separate you from the safety of the shore. They overwhelm you with the size of the waves and they oppose you with the gusts of their wind. Listen, you need commitments in your life before you are tested by its storms. You need commitments in your marriage before it is tried by conflict. You need commitments in your faith before it is tested by hardship. Watch, because if you wait until the storm to figure out your non-negotiable commitments, you will always choose the path of least resistance. 
What can alleviate my pain now? How can I run away from the problem now? How can I escape that which makes me uncomfortable now? Here's the problem. The path of least resistance is also the path of least development. You know, when I do weddings and we go through the traditional wedding vows, there's a reason we say for richer or for Dodge Aries. <laughs> in sickness and in health. Till death do us part. You know, when you're standing at the altar on your wedding day, you're not thinking about the sorrow, the sickness, the conflict, the problems. You're just so excited that somebody loved you enough to say yes to your marriage proposal. Bless God, I made it. But the reason why we make commitments on the front end is because for all you in this room who've ever been married for longer than 16 minutes knows that it's only a matter of time before y'all face a storm. And if you wait until the storm to make your commitment, you will always commit to the wrong thing. Ah, I'm just giving up and I'm out and I can't believe this and I'm done and this, that, and the third. What I find in our world today is when times are good, people don't have the discipline in their mind to determine what their commitments are. And for me, I, I had the privilege of, of, of planting this church nine years ago in a barn in a city called Snohomish. And some of those early days were super exciting, but also super challenging. And, and, and the Lord really worked on my heart while I'm cleaning out rats from crawl spaces, trying to put food on the table, trying to figure out how to pay the bills. Like Russ, if you can make some commitments now, regardless of what you face, when the time comes, instead of the storm changing you, you'll make it through. Even in people who work out and bodybuilding, things of that nature, they say this, watch. Resistance training is a form of physical activity that is designed to improve muscular fitness by exercising a muscle or a muscle group against external resistance. How is my spirit strengthened? How is my faith developed? When an unstoppable force meets an immovable object, I didn't give up. I didn't run away. I trusted God in the middle of it. And as a result, he has developed the deep things of my life. I used, watch, the external resistance for my benefit. Paul tells the church in Philippians 1, he says this, my chains have been used to advance the gospel. My chains, my bondage, my imprisonment, my persecution, my torture, my abuse. It has been used to advance the gospel. <laughs> if we run away at the first sign of resistance, we never develop that spiritual muscle that only grows by facing resistance and staring it in the face until you make it through. And we cannot afford to only be followers of Jesus when times are good. Jesus tells his disciples, in this world, you will have trouble. What is he trying to tell them? I'm with you now and everything's great. But in a minute, they're gonna string me up on this cross and you're gonna freak out. And three days later, I'm gonna get out of the grave. And you're gonna freak out again. And then 50 days after that, I'm gonna float up in the sky with angels and you're gonna freak out again. And you gotta make some commitments now about the type of men and women you desire to be. Now watch, watch, watch what happens. Verse 26, I love this. When the disciples saw Jesus walking on the sea, they was terrified and said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him saying, Lord, if it's you, fine, but command me to come to you on the water. And Christ said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and, and he walked on the water and he came to Jesus. Now hear me, friend. There's a difference between having a storm and a storm having you. Do you notice that the first thing Jesus does is not to calm the storm? It's not to fix the problem. It's not to bail them out. The first thing Jesus does is tell the disciples to check their heart. It's a storm. Disciples are freaking out. 
All of a sudden, they see Jesus walking on the water, but they don't know it's him. So they cry out in fear that it's a ghost. This is literally the worst moment of their lives up until this point. And Jesus stands in the middle of the storm. And instead of calming the waves and instead of speaking to the wind, the first thing that he addresses is the posture of their heart. (laughs) I think for us, we want God to rescue us out of storms when most of the time he is interested in developing us through the storm. God, I need a rescue. And God's like, oh, I'm gonna rescue you. But I'm not just gonna eliminate every storm that you face because this is the best way that you grow. Hear me, that phrase, take heart, take heart, Jesus says, take heart. What does that mean? It literally means in the Greek, watch, radiate courage from your interior life. Radiate courage from your interior life. Quit whining. Radiate courage from your interior life. Do you know what binds every human together in the greater Seattle Metroplex, all three million of us? It's not that we all have hope because we don't, because without Christ, there is no hope. It's that we all have storms. And what sets you apart being a follower of Jesus is not that your life is exempt from hardship. It's that when hardship comes, your heart does not melt in fear, but instead you radiate courage from your interior life. (laughs) Jesus is telling his disciples, you don't know what manner of spirit you are of. I've given you courage. I've given you faith. I've given you hope. I've given you grace. Now examine the bank account of your heart and allow what is on the inside to be made manifest on the outside. The second thing that Jesus does is rebuke their fear. He still hasn't calmed the storms. He's given them a Bible lesson. I'm sure they're irritated. He says, take heart. And then he rebukes their fear. Now watch, remember, being afraid is a normal human response to an event that happens in a moment of time. But living in fear is different. Living in fear is a spirit that dominates every interaction you have going forward. Paul says this, God has not given us the spirit of fear. He doesn't say God won't allow us to feel afraid. Paul says the spirit of fear that seeks to dominate the decision-making process of God's people is not from the Father and should not be tolerated by his children. Now watch, watch. Storms don't change you, they reveal you. Storms don't change you, they reveal you. The storm reveals that many of the disciples are still wrapped up in a crippling amount of ungodly fear. But it also reveals that there is a man named Peter who is audacious enough to ask for the impossible. You know the story. Peter gets out of the boat, walks on water, begins to sink and cries out for help. But I need you to see this today. It was safe in the boat. It may have been still relatively dry in the boat. It was comfortable in the boat. It was reassuring in the boat. It was non-controversial in the boat. But if Jesus is in the storm, that's the only place that I wanna be. I'd rather be with Jesus on the waves than with anyone else who stayed in the boat. We were built for the wild. We were built for the courageous. We were built for the controversial. We were built for awakening. And I refuse to, hear me, I refuse to trade the waves of revival for the safety of the shore. In verse 32, the story continues. When they got into the boat, the wind ceased and those in the boat worshiped him saying, truly, you are the son of God. Both the storm and the savior are competing for your worship. You decide which one is worthy of your praise. I love this declaration. Truly, truly, you are the son of God. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis says this, I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Christ. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. 
That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic or else he would be the devil. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else he is a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. Jesus is truly the son of the living God. Let me in here. And when they had crossed over, they came to the land at Genesaret, verse 34. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him, watch, all who were sick. I love this. And they implored him that they might only touch the hem of his garment. And as many as touched it, they were made well. I want you to see this today in Matthew 14. The scriptures communicate to us a story with three scenes. Scene one, we are formed by God. Scene two, we experience storms on our journey with God. And scene three, we perform in cooperation with God. There was an entire region named Genesaret that was filled with people who were sick and demonized. And the destiny of a region hinged on the obedience of the disciples. If they would embrace the forming, having a separate and distinct identity from the crowd, if they would endure the storming and not lose sight of the Savior, watch what God would do through the Spirit's performing. You don't have permission to quit. You don't have permission to give up. You don't have permission to be shallow or to get lost in the crowd or to allow fear to stop your advancement. There's an entire region whose destiny hangs in the balance and I feel the weight of that reality even as I preach tonight. Is Genesaret worth it? Is Seattle worth it? Is Kirkland worth it? worth it? Is the Northwest worth it? Is your family worth it? Is your future worth it? Are the sick, the lame, the lost, the demonized, the abused of the Northwest, are they worth it? Is the hem of his garment worth the storm it will take to get there? Friend, I would say so. You tonight are being formed by God. You are not just a number in a crowd. You're a disciple with an invitation to follow Jesus. You're getting prepared to face storms in your life. So when they reveal who you really are, you radiate courage from your interior soul. Why? Because there's a destiny greater than you ever dared to imagine. That's just waiting for some disciples who won't give up when the waves are tough. There's a region called Genesaret with the demonized, the lame, the sick, the prodigals who are just looking to experience the performance of God's power. And whether you like it or not, the church today is still God's plan A for the redemption of the world. We are being formed. We will survive the storm. And in cooperation with God, we will perform in accordance with His Spirit's power. That's the type of people we are. And this is the type of God that we serve. In just a moment, uh, I'm gonna pray for you and we're gonna end service tonight. 
maybe just a little differently than we normally do. Of course, we'll make time to pray for people. And that's one of the things I love about Sunday nights here in Seattle is we got time in the altar, time in the presence. God does just so many powerful things. But I wanted to give you uh, an opportunity tonight if you would like to sow into the Kirkland Building Fund and haven't yet had an opportunity to do so, I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that in a moment. I'm confident that the God I serve will supply everything that I'm in need of according to His riches and glory. And I'm confident that God, the one who owns cattle on a thousand hills, already has every ounce of resource we need to see Kirkland reach with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It wasn't too many months ago that I stood on this stage and I prayed and prophesied, not knowing that Kirkland was on the horizon. And I said, God, do something on the east side. God, for our inheritance, give us Kirkland. May the renown of the Lord spread across the Pacific Northwest. I had no idea that in just a few weeks we'd be in conversation take over the most historic church property in all of Kirkland, Washington. But I have a sneaking suspicion that this won't be the last time that we celebrate God opening a door that no man can close. With every new door that God opens, there's new opportunities, but there's also new adversaries and new challenges. I know that there's storms ahead because bigger buildings have bigger waves. Bigger properties have have bigger waves. Bigger doors have bigger problems. But I know this, if if God will lead me to it, He's going to lead me through it. And we're not going to shrink back from our God-ordained moment. Because when I close my eyes and I pray for Kirkland, I see a sea of people lost in the crowd dying to be a disciple deeply formed follower of Christ the Bible says in another portion of Matthew that when Jesus looked out on the crowds he wept because they were like sheep without a shepherd Kirkland's cool building's cool it's 2,200 seats, 112,000 square feet. It's on 14 acres. It's got 1,000 parking spots. Yeah, Kirkland's cool. But the vision is not the building. Big buildings don't impress me. We held church service in a barn. <laughs> it's never been about the building or the next piece of property or try to develop a real estate empire. That's never been my heart. All buildings do is help facilitate encounters with the presence of God. And whether we got to pop up a tent in a field or we get to take over a massive property, whatever it is, we want to be faithful to say, God, here am I, send me. And I'm just believing that our best days are ahead of us. And in doing so, we are going to see a harvest of souls unlike any other in the year 2024. You and I are going to get to do this together. Would you stand with me as we get ready to close?